You're listening to Tarazi Tuesdays with the Bible as Literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos, and you are listening to Tarazi Tuesdays with the Bible as Literature podcast. This week, Richard follows up Father Paul's discussion of Genesis chapter 10 with a question about the significance of Eber and his children as they relate to Shem. I am happy to introduce Father Paul on the Bible as Literature podcast, Tarazi Tuesdays. In verse 21, we have the children of Eber. It's the same root as Hebrew. Shem is called the father of his children. But then we also read all the generations that come between Shem and Eber. The author is obviously highlighting the children of Eber, relating them to Shem, but in a way that's not very straightforward. I was wondering if you could fill in some gaps. Well, I was postponing this until Genesis 11, verse 10, and the following, where we have precisely the Toledot of Shem. But one more time, what I like about you, Richard, is that intentionally or unintentionally, it doesn't matter in Scripture. What matters is that you pick up something which is really at the heart of the matters. <laughs> there you go. But beyond you, I would like to glorify the authors. So everything is already set up, and I shall talk about this more when we get also to Yoktan, how he is mentioned here after Eber, and then although he is the older, he is eliminated. That's another point, just to show you the conjunction. To Eber were born two sons. The name of the one was Peleg, for the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Yoktan. Sorry, Yoktan is the younger. And here we have the two areas. Well, since Yoktan is not going to appear, according to me, Yoktan is the one that represents the Arabian desert. And Eber, Eber, from which we have Ibri, represents the Syrian desert. So we have two suns that spread over both deserts. And that is important because, remember, we have the mention of Havilah in verse 29 that appeared already early in Genesis 2. Again, earlier with Cush and so on. That's the way I would read this text. Yoktan, Katan in Hebrew is obviously the little one, the younger, but the older is Eber, whose name will appear in chapter 11. So that would be quickly, precisely the importance. But again, what is important for my hearers is not to trumpet the fame of Richard Benton that picked up this. Richard Benton just read the text that was written by the authors, and they alone have planted the seed of this play on Eber. And then you have the mention of Aram, which is very important. But here we'll go into names. Let's go for 28. Ophir, Havilah, and Jobab. Ophir and Havilah are in the south, way in the southern Arabian desert. All these were the sons of Joktan, Yoktan, 
So it's clear in the text. Whereas the others are in the northern area, Aram and so on. Eber, yes, is very important and it's going to get its full importance later because it will very clearly show itself to be the basis of Ibri. You know, very early we shall hear, we'll get to this text. Abram Ha'ibri, out of the blue sky, Abram, the Hebrew. That's very strange. You mentioned for the first time a noun, and it is already with the definite article. Now, again, theology dismantles all this <laughs> because somehow they want to force their view on the text. But the text was intended to be heard by someone who knew Semitic languages. The addressees were Semites. They spoke about the Japhethites, but the addressees were Semites. And people will pick this immediately the way the people pick up that Adam and Adama are connected. And this happens only in the scriptural Hebrew. They are connected because they are connected. So yes, sir, Eber or Eber with the Ein at the beginning is definitely central here. By the way, you have also in 26, Joktan became the father of Almodad, Shalef and Hazermavet, which I mean for someone who knows the original, known that it refers to Hadramaut, a name that is still in southern Arabia now. And then after that you have Sheba and then Ophir and then Havila. It's clear that Joktan or Yoktan, like Shem is the father of the one desert that is split between the Syrian desert and the Arabian desert, which is already present for the one who knows the geography of the area in chapter 2 of Genesis, where you have two rivers whose name are made up to express gushing out, and the others are by name the Euphrates and the Tigris. And very clearly, you have north and south. So the authors were giants. They knew what they were doing. Even classical scholarship always explained chapter 10 because the question, how did they know about these things? Obviously, you're not going to say that God inspired them and blah, 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 according to this literalistic view. So scholarship said, well, they had access to the archives of Babylon and the other main cities. So technically, they agree with me that these people were giants and knowledgeable people, leaders, priests of the area. But the funny thing is that you have priests whose entire huge literature is against the priests and the temple. That is my major point in my approach to my book. But 
we, not only theologians, we believers, like to begin very positively. But this is not how scripture speaks. It puts you down, belittles you, and this is coming very soon in chapter 11. You have a full chapter speaking about the nations coming from all over the place and spreading all over the place in power. All these nations, which is Ha'adam, coming together to do something. And God destroys his plan by sending a little bit of rain. See how out of the blue you have an individual, I mean individual, individual, powerful, in chapter 10. Cush became the father of Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man, remember, first. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter. So three times we have the word Gibor, the mighty of mighties. And he's linked to the major cities. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, and Akkad, all of them in the land of Shinar. From that land, he went into Assyria and built Nineveh and so on and so forth. But within a few verses, you're going to hear again of this Shinar, where the people wanted to build a city and a tower. But again, if you know Hebrew, you are already prepared to jump to Ezekiel. Obviously, you know, scripture has to be read the first time. I mean, heard the first time just by going through it, zapping without thinking. If you start thinking at first reading, you're not going to understand scripture. Then on the second year of reading, you start making the connections. Nimrod, for those who know Hebrew, is from the verb Marad, to stand tall, to rebel. The word giant in these stories made up about sagas and so on is married in Arabic. But then that verb appears in Ezekiel chapter 2 where we hear, and I'm sending you El Goyim, to nations, he belittles Israel by referring to it as nations. Hamoredim. This is the active participle of the verb marad. Asher who maradu be have rebelled against me. Nimrod is the rebellion. So one more time, how shall I put it? The author, I mean, he's a more powerful than the classic writings of the Greeks and Rome, much more powerful. He plants the seed, even if you don't get it. But to get it, you have to know the origin. But even if you don't get it, slowly on, you realize. Otherwise, why would the author mention out of the blue land of Shinar? Okay, it is found in 10... 11 and Ezekiel and very interestingly let me jump there to show you how the text connects and I discussed this in my commentary on Joshua you remember that 
person from the tribe of Judah who stole things, silver and gold and so on, and he was punished, his Achan. But then the text mentions that he also stole a mantle from Shinar, which is silly. <laughs> it's like when you hear it, a modern person, gold and silver and the vessels of the temple and a rag. People say, but let's, I'm joking. A holy rag with which, you know, you clean the vessels. No, it's the fact that whatever this mantle or rag or piece of cloth was from Shinar. And my explanation, my commentary is, oh, you're so excited about Shinar. Very well. At the end of two kings, I'm going to send your descendants to the land of Shinar. That, friends, is sheer power. It is sheer power. And that bolsters my earlier statement that the first time you have to hear the entire scripture, you don't stop for the first time without asking questions, raising your finger as first-year seminarians, or even imagine that a thought crosses your mind. Yeah, there is a Shinar, Ohio. I mean, in the United States, you have all the biblical names. And sometimes they don't find enough names. You have Canaan and New Canaan, Zion and New Zion. Yes, but in those times, the United States was not around. We're hearing a text. And I would ask most of you, you can do this even in English, in a concordance. You have a name, let's say Shinar. Just Google. Now, if you have 370 instances, it's not fun. I know theologians like more instances. No, zero in on the words that appear only a few times. Like yesterday, I was discussing because I was working with my editor on my commentary on Ephesians, and I show that Anna Kefaleoste appears only in Ephesians and in Romans. I mean, that is striking. But anyway, there is a lot. I told you that it's a very exciting chapter. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.